Uh, my name's Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, lead pastor here, we're going to be getting into God's Word. We do need to uh, get moving here straight away. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. Or you can just turn on your phone and open up your, your little app or whatever it is now in the 21st century. Um, but we're going to be chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, looking at... at Verses 29 to 36. I'll read it, pray, and then we will uh, get to work. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he, being Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Let's pray. I imagine you're all thoroughly confused after reading that, so let's uh, (laughs) let's pray for God's wisdom. God, there's a lot in these seven or eight verses. And there's a lot that maybe our modern minds or modern ears don't don't take in and understand at first. There's a lot growing out of the Old Testament in this text. And so we've got a lot to look at, a lot to uncover. God, it seems to me that the main point In all of this is going to be, how are we going to respond to you? I mean, every person in this room this morning is in a different place with you, no doubt. Some perhaps are just on the fringes. Some maybe have been walking with you for years. But the big question that you pose to us this morning in this text is how are we responding to what you reveal to us, to what you're showing us? If you're commanding us to do certain things, are we obeying? If you're revealing the the depths of our sin, are we repenting? If you're revealing to us the beauty 
and the sufficiency of the provision of Christ and the rescue of his redemptive work on the cross. Are we embracing that by faith? Crying out for it, rejoicing in it, adoring you for it. Or are our hearts cold and wandering after other things? Lord, I'm praying that your spirit would be present here this morning. It's no mystery. The whole biblical record makes the case that the human heart in and of itself is cold, rock hard, cold. And we need what in the Old Testament was referred to as the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the spirit. that You would come and soften. You would cut away the dead. You would make us alive. You would help us respond appropriately to the beauty of our Savior and all that you're revealing to us in him. I can't make that happen, God. But I do pray I'd be faithful to the text and that your spirit would get to work in our hearts here today. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes that happens. That's probably ill-advised as a uh, preacher when you pretty much give away your whole message in a, the opening prayer. Uh, but there it was. Uh, let me begin this way. We mentioned last week, um, but it's worth saying up front again here. When you are confronted with Jesus... There really is no option of neutrality. Uh, you are at once, it would seem to me, kind of thrown into this state of crisis. A, a, a point of decision has to be reached the moment you come to face, the moment you are confronted by Jesus. You need to deal with this question. What am I going to do with him? Now that I see him, now that I hear him, now that I witness these things, now that people are telling me about him, whatever it may be, what am I going to do with him? There is no middle of the road. You are either softening to him or you are hardening. You are either opening to him or you are closing. The light is either going to start getting brighter for you or things are going to start going dark. But one way or another, depending on what you do with Jesus, stuff is going to happen. There's no, I said it last week, this is a Y in the road situation, not a fork. Three, where I can just kind of keep going middle if I want and ride the fence a little while longer. No, no, no. The devil owns the fence. You understand? There is no option of neutrality. To choose neutrality is to choose against Jesus. It's to say, I'm not quite sure I see enough of him yet, which is to start to harden your heart towards what he's already revealed. So there's a why in the road. In this way or that way, when Jesus confronts an individual, what are we going to do with him? Um, this really is the reason why, if you see it there on your handout, I titled the message the way that I did, uh, Revelation and Response. I think that's the point of the whole text, as I'll show you. Jesus is revealing things to us about himself, about God, about ourselves. 
And then the big question is, how are we responding? Are we responding appropriately to that revelation? Revelation calls for response. Now, before we can really dive into our text for the morning, I I think it would be helpful to revisit the miracle, actually, that occasioned this whole discussion Jesus is having with this crowd now that's gathering around. Uh, This connects us back to the text that we dealt with last week and really the beginning of it. Look at uh, verses 14 to 16, just up a little bit from where we are here today, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let me read this to you. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, this is context. But here's what you have. A demon-oppressed man uh, made mute by this demon jesus rolls up on him casts the demon out the guy starts speaking and the crowds respond uh, some people no doubt marvel at what they just saw but then we're told at least there's this constituency of of, of objectors uh, matthew and mark and their account tell us uh, not surprisingly it's it's those guys the scribes and the pharisees kind of like the arch rivals of jesus like jesus is threatening their religious uh prominence in the jewish culture and don't like him so not surprisingly they don't like this miracle Two different kinds of response, objections coming from this group. The first one is what we really looked at last time. And it's that this one group gets together and says, hey, if he's doing this, surely it can't be by Yahweh. It must be by Satan. And that's what Jesus deals with uh, in all the stuff that we looked at last time prior to verse 29. But then in verse 29 now, he's going to turn his attention towards the second group and their objection. Namely, there's another uh, uh, group of individuals that are coming at it from a different, uh, uh, different angle. Some are saying, must be of Satan. Others are saying, it ain't enough. What I just saw, the miracle, the casting out of a demon, the mute man speaking, it's not enough to convince me. I need another sign. I need a little bit more. If you're going to want faith from me, you're my king, you're the Christ, you're my whatever, I'm going to need to see a little bit more. Thank you. Give me another sign. Now, it's this kind of second group of objectors that Jesus is now going to deal with in earnest in our text this morning. Let me um, show you kind of where we're going to be headed as we look now, verses 29 through 36. First, what we're going to see is a greater sign, verses 29 to 30, a greater man, verses 31 to 32, and finally a greater light in verses 33 to 36. So let's dive into this then this morning first a greater sign verses 29 and 30 a greater sign the first thing that we need to make note of uh, regarding this whole uh, this whole crew that's asking for more asking for another sign asking for something else and then maybe they'll believe jesus isn't happy first thing we need to know is that jesus is not pleased with this sort of 
response. In fact, there's this uh, almost kind of heart-wrenching moment recorded in Mark's account of this story where it says that uh, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. When he saw that this is how they were responding, it's like his heart just broke. His spirit just burdened. He just sighed. How much more do you need to see? But then he speaks, as we see in our text there, verse 29, and he says this, this generation is an evil generation. You don't want Jesus saying that about your generation. He might say that about the millennials, though, I suppose. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I probably am one. I don't even know where the cutoff is. It seeks for a sign. It seeks for a sign. Now, perhaps, like this crowd, like this group, you've been there in one way or another at one time or another. Maybe you're even there right now where you have sought from Jesus a sign. Like, Jesus, help me. Show me that you're there. What's going on? Which, which, which road do I take? Which decision should I? Show me a sign. Help me believe, whatever it might be. Now, let me just at least say this. Um, not every request, I don't think, for, for a sign is, is from evil. Okay? Like, Jesus, I think we talked about it last week, is happy to oblige the honest seeker he is happy i mean he is the one initiating the signs and calling for faith in light of them so he's not opposed of john in his gospel is going to follow all the signs of jesus and make sure we see it so that we would have faith and come to salvation in his name so i don't think the signs themselves or even a request necessarily are from evil it's more about the heart behind it so when we ask Jesus for help or to show us, like sometimes that comes from this idea of, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Or maybe some of you out on the, on, on the, are on the fence in terms of Christianity. And you're saying, I am willing to believe. I even kind of want to believe. Help me get there. What, show me. And I think, man, even just last week, I feel like God did that for me in a, in a personal way. So I... I'm not thinking that that makes us evil. But there is a way of asking, and you see it in this text, that is of evil. There is a way of asking that isn't right. And it's coming forth from a hardened heart, not a heart that's softening and open to what Jesus would show, but actually from a heart that's hardening. And the question, here's what makes it so um, deceptively evil. It looks like you're opening to him. When really you're closing. It looks like you're saying, hey, I just need to see a little more. And then I will believe when really you're saying, no matter how much you show me. <laughs> show me one more. Show me one more. Show me. I ain't going to believe. That's the point. That's what's happening in this text. They have seen enough. Jesus knows it. This is an evil generation. It's never going to be enough for you because you don't want to come. Perhaps it would help if I um, took you to kind of the outermost extremity of this sort of thing. You can kind of see what I mean. Um, later in Jesus's ministry, kind of near the end of his time on this earth, uh, he's going to perform, you might say, uh, yet another sign. Um, 
many of you are probably familiar with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? Uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So he is gone by all accounts. Uh, they even warn him when he op- has him open the tomb, right? There's going to be a stench coming out. You ain't going to want to do that. We don't got any Febreze in here, Jesus. It's going to be bad. Jesus says, oh, open up the tomb. He speaks a word, and the dead man comes to life, right? Now, there's a crowd around him, right, naturally, because people are going, what is he doing? He thinks he's going to raise this guy from there. We've got to see this. Oh, this should be a good show. This will be at least a good laugh. And then they watch Lazarus come out, and we're told that many believe because of this sign, because of this miracle, because of what Jesus did with this brother. But then check it out now. How's the religious crew? How's these leaders, like the scribes and the Pharisees, how are they going to respond? Do they finally drop down on their knees and go, man, we got the sign we were looking for. I mean, this is what we needed from the beginning. Now we're ready to fall. Is that how they respond? No, instead their hearts are exposed and you start to see what all this seeking for a sign was in the first place. It was just a disguise. It was just a way of hiding their own hardness. This is what they say. The chief priests, this is John 11, 47, 48. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together or gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Is that a good thing? No. They're leaving us. We're losing our platform. So what do they do? Well, we read down in verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The heart is coming out. Everyone's believing in him because of these signs. Yeah, sure, we were asking for him. We didn't want everyone else to see and follow. It was just our way of distracting, just our way of continuing to push back. I guess the only option we have left is to kill him. So, That's what Jesus is picking up on back in our text. That's what he knows is coming on down the line. These guys aren't genuinely interested in the revelation that he has to bring of who he is, who they are, what they need, what God is willing to provide. None of that. They want to maintain their place. And they're willing to kill him if that's what it takes. So... Jesus looks at them. He says, okay, I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. Therefore, this generation, I'm not going to give it any more signs. I'm not going to give you any more signs except for one. Except for one. Do you see it there? Verse 29, what he calls the sign of Jonah. Now, you kind of look at that and you might say, well, what, what does the sign of Jonah mean? Let me do some work on that with you, actually. Different scholars think different things. I'll just give you my opinion for the sake of time. We can talk more about it later. Um, But you may or may not be familiar with the story of Jonah. Some of us probably are. Some of us might not be. So I did at least want to give kind of a high-level flyby of his story. He was a prophet, 
in Old Testament times, except kind of had this unique call. He wasn't sent to the Jews, to the people of Israel, the people of Yahweh, the people of God. Instead, he was sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to Nineveh in particular, a major capital or a major city in uh, Assyria. I mean, the Assyrians were significant enemies of the Jews. And this prophet is called by God to go and minister there, go and prophesy there. Well, naturally, Jonah doesn't want to go. Doesn't sound like a good idea. Doesn't sound like a cush life. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do this. So he instead boards a boat and heads in exactly the opposite direction to Tarshish. Well, God ain't going to have that. So what happens as he's on this boat, the, uh, God kind of stirs up the sea, right? He stirs up the sea, and, and, and the guys on the boat with Jonah finally come to the realization that I think it's this guy's fault. I think God is actually mad at him. And Jonah goes, that's fine, just throw me into the water, right? And I bet you it'll stop for you guys. So they, they hesitate. They're like, God, we're sorry. They actually show more remorse and, and more openness to Yahweh than Jonah himself uh, does. But they throw Jonah into the water, and the, and the, and the waves cease. And Jonah goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down. But then we're told, Jonah 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, from there, from that place in the depths, you could say, of the, 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 the ocean, Jonah cries out to God. And then God, we're told, speaks to this fish and it vomits Jonah up on the dry land. And God says, all right, we're going to try this one more time. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I got a message for you to deliver. Jonah's like, all right, I, I think I got the point. I'm on this one. You know, we got this. He goes to Nineveh. He proclaims, hey, listen, 40 days or so. And because of the evil in this place, my God is going to bring judgment the people of Nineveh, Gentiles though they be, hear that, believe it, repent, and judgment is averted. Mercy is shown. Now, that probably, perhaps, still doesn't even help you with what in the world is the sign of Jonah? Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any more signs except for the sign of Jonah. Well, what are we talking about here? I think Matthew's account of this story helps put this plainly for us. Let me read to you Jesus' words there. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For, now here he goes, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection here. This sign he's saying that's coming, his death and his resurrection. This is what you might say. Listen, before I pack up shop and leave Israel, 
I got one last act, one last sign, one grand finale. You want to know what it is? My death and my resurrection, the cross, the sign of Jonah. But consider this. As Jonah was thrown into the sea to calm the raging waters of God's wrath, so too on the cross, it's as if Jesus is hurled into that same sea that he might bring those waters to peace now for you and I. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and in kind of the depths of the earth, so too Jesus, after being crucified, would lay lifeless three days, three nights in the earth behind stone. And as Jonah was then spit out onto dry land and used of God to bring a nation to repentance and salvation, you might say, or at least a version of judgment. So too, Jesus, when he rises from the dead after dying for our sins, will proclaim a salvation available to all who would repent and believe in him. It's the sign of Jonah. So with these words back in verses 29 and 30 of our text, it's as if he's saying, listen, I'm done with the show. You guys aren't going to get it. But I've come here for one thing, one thing in particular, and, and, and that is what we will do. The sign of Jonah, my death, my resurrection. I'm not here to put on a show for you. I'm here to save your soul. Now, there is um, one implication in all of this that I wanted to bring out before I move on, and, and it's really why I worded the first heading the way that I did, a greater sign. I'm actually not talking about uh, what the crowd is asking for, like show us a greater sign. I'm talking about the greater sign of Jesus' death and resurrection, that that is the greatest sign he could give. The sign of Jonah is a greater sign that he, than he could give anywhere or uh, in anything preceding. Uh, what I want to show you is I, I think we can draw from Jesus' logic here that all of his other miracles and signs are in some ways pointing to, leading to this one final sign, this kind of climactic sign, climactic miracle in his death and resurrection. All the other signs have only been little foretastes of the true and everlasting redemption he will accomplish only ultimately by way of his death for our sins and resurrection for our new life. I want to show you what I mean. All these other signs that people, people are clamoring for are just foretastes of what he can only ultimately really bring in by way of his death and resurrection. So, Think with me about some of these signs, some of these miracles that he's shown up to this point. When Jesus heals a leper, for example, and he declares that leper clean. Go back and hang out with your kin. Hang out with your family. Give someone a hug. You are clean. You want to know what that is a foretaste of, what is a picture of? How Jesus will take marled, mangy sinners and restore us. Wash us, make us clean, and invite us into the household of God. It's the reality that he can only usher in. 
by way of his death and resurrection. That sign finds its ultimate aim in the final sign, the sign of Jonah. Or when he restores sight to the blind, it is a picture, a foretaste in many ways of the way that he will ultimately open the eyes of our hearts to see God. You remember um, Paul, right? When he thinks he sees and then, and then Jesus actually shows up to him as he's persecuting the church. And we're told that he's struck blind for a while, but then all of a sudden scales fall from his eyes. This is a picture of, of spiritual sight. Like I see now the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that is a reality that can only be ushered in by way of Jesus' death and resurrection. We need to be born again to see that. So when he touches this guy's eyes or has him wipes mud in it or whatever he, he does and heals the blind, it is a picture, a foretaste of something that ultimately only, his, 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 only the cross can accomplish. When he takes a few loaves and he feeds the 5,000, right? It's an amazing sign. It's an amazing miracle. But what it really is is a picture of what he's come to do. Where he would say, man, my, my body is that bread broken. Like, I'm going to give my life for the, the hungry, not bellies, but hungry souls of the world. You eat this bread, you're going to be hungry again tomorrow morning. You're going to be knocking on my door asking for breakfast. I've come to give something so much more significant. That sign pointing to the final, ultimate, climactic sign. I want you to be satisfied in God, in the depths of your soul. You can only bring that in by way of his death and resurrection. We're not getting back to God if Jesus doesn't die for our sins. We're not getting that joy in his presence if we're not forgiven and free. When he casts out demons, it is a picture, like in our text here, it's a picture of the way he'll ultimately set us free from the bondage we have to Satan. Like he even says it in the text right before this we looked at last week. Listen, if I cast out demons and then you don't respond to me appropriately and embrace the salvation that I am bringing, listen, that demon is just going to bring back more of his buddies. It's going to get worse. Like that sign is meant to lead you to this greater sign. You need the redemption that I can bring you by the cross where it says that, man, you remember he's, he's risen from the dead and he triumphs over the powers of darkness, putting them to shame. Like their accusations, all this stuff won't land on us anymore because Jesus has declared not guilty. The power Satan has over us his, his, his fangs are removed. His claws plucked out. You might be able to gum you, but that's about it. So it requires his death and resurrection. Last one I'll give you. When he raises a dead man or woman, uh, it is a picture of the way he will ultimately regenerate us by his spirit. Like you think of Lazarus, for example, 
Lazarus may get a few more good years of life with his family or whatever. He might enjoy some good wine or some good food. And Oh, this was great. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a few more years. But if Lazarus doesn't embrace Jesus, doesn't come, say, Man, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness for him. I said, well, let me tell you something. He's going to die again. And if he dies in his sin, he will die eternally. You understand? So this was just a foretaste of what Jesus is really after. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And you need me if you want what this is all about. I'm bringing that in by way of the sign of Jonah, by way of my death and my resurrection. That's how we're going to regenerate you now. That's how we're going to raise up your bodies immortal on the last day. If you cut these earlier signs off from where they are headed in his death and resurrection, then all of these other signs become worthless, pointless, meaningless. Who cares if you have a few more good years? Who cares if you have a little bit more food in your belly? If you go to hell where the worm never dies and it's chewing you forever. Who cares? You see? And so Jesus, that, was, that sounded a little bit macabre. But those are Jesus' words. But you see what he's saying here I think and I think that's what he catches with some of these guys and he probably catches it with some of us where man we like we might like the signs we might like the show we might want him to do another thing for us to fix our circumstances or whatever it is Jesus come on be my servant be my showman but I don't think I need a savior I don't certainly want a lord like, come on in and fix some things for me. Put on a good, good performance. When we start talking about the sign of Jonah. We start talking about the cross. We start talking about the fact that God is angry with the world because of their sin. But he loves them so much that he would send his son. Now, we need to repent and receive this king and what he is doing for us. Start talking about that. And I go, no, thanks. Maybe some of us come to church because we hear that God works. That Jesus works. I want to see if I can get a miracle. I can get a few things fixed in my life. I think I put this question on your hand now. What do you, what would you say you want more? Um, for Jesus to fix your circumstances? Here and now, in the immediate moment? Or for Jesus to forgive your sins? Because that will ultimately fix every circumstance you could ever deal with. All the problems, all the blindness, the death, all the stuff he's dealing with has been brought in because of sin. And he's saying, listen, all this is a picture of how I'm going to deal with sin and bring in a new humanity and a new world. And if you're not willing to follow where those signs go, I'm not going to give you any more signs except for that last one that they're all about. You hear that? Does that make sense? So the question for us is where are we in that, right? The question is, are we kind of following behind Jesus, hoping to get a little bit of the, you know, the goods, hoping to see a little bit of the show? Is he just servant or showman for us, or is he Savior and Lord? Like, you tell me. I go. I see I need it. I want it. Like that, I think he just opens up to that kind of person and is ready to, to pour out. A greater man. Uh, heading number two there, a greater man, verses 31 to 32. Um, in these verses, Jesus is really just continuing his rebuke of these men. Uh, he brings up two examples from the Old Testament where the revelation that came from God was met with proper response. Okay, so he's, he's going to continue to say, guys, 
religious leaders, crowd, Jews, what's going on here? Why are you not responding to what I'm revealing? Let me show you a couple examples of people who did respond appropriately to the revelation of God. And this rebuke is going to sting even a little bit more uh, profoundly so, perhaps, for uh, his listeners, because the, the examples he's going to hold out are Gentiles. Pagans, those whom God would consider, or those whom uh, Israel would consider their enemies. Those who shouldn't get it, Jesus is saying, are getting it way before you guys. He's holding them out as examples to emulate. Now, he's going to return to Jonah and the Ninevites in a moment, but actually in Luke's account, at least, he interjects here uh, this idea of King Solomon, which is interesting. Let's look at this for a moment. Let me tell you, just kind of refresh a little bit about Solomon so this queen of the south idea makes sense. Um, Solomon, maybe you remember this, um, maybe you don't. Uh, He was, uh, you know, anointed king after his father David, sits down on the throne. God comes to uh, Solomon and says, listen, what do you want me to do for you? Um, I don't know what your response would be if God came to you like that. Uh, But Solomon answered right. He said, hey, how about, listen, my father was, was wise. I'm young. I feel like I'm ill-equipped for this. Can you give me wisdom? I need to be able to discern good from evil. Can you help me? God says, man, you answered right. I will give you wisdom and I will give you prosperity. And I guess supposedly his wisdom, prosperity and things, uh, so significant a measure God gave him that it's like news was spreading throughout the world. Now, this is where you can cue the queen of the south because this lady hears of it. Uh, from where she is and goes, no way, I've got to come see uh, this king for myself. I hear of his wisdom. I hear of his wealth. I want to come and check things out. Queen of the South is, uh, we know, probably from First Corinthians or First Kings 10, uh, was the queen of Sheba, a country far, far south of Israel. Most would locate it in modern-day Yemen, which uh, I tried to kind of Google and research, whatever. Uh, and what I found is about 1,400 miles from Jerusalem, which for this lady at that time would mean a journey of more than a few weeks. 1,400 miles. You're not just driving in your Tesla, putting it on autopilot, and going to see King Solomon, right? This is going to take a while. This is a serious investment. But she hears that, that God has done something there in Jerusalem, little old Jerusalem, and she is on her way there. And here's uh, what she says when she's come all that way. She wants to see it for herself. And then she says to the king, 1 Kings 10, 6 through 9, 6 through 9 the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and, and, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. I mean, did you catch that? She comes all this way to see and then when she does see, she responds appropriately. She says, wow, what an amazing God you have. Yahweh is incredible. 
she responds with adoration, ultimately, of, of, of Yahweh, of Solomon's God. And so Jesus, in our text, is going to flip this illustration on, uh, back onto this crowd and say, okay, guys, wait, think with me here. Think with me. She was 1,400 miles away. Okay? She was a Gentile. She came all that way, saw a little bit of Solomon in his wisdom, and responded appropriately with adoration to Yahweh. Now, you, you're a Jew. You're the people of God. You have his revelation from the book of Genesis to now. And you, you have not just Solomon, but as he will say, something greater than Solomon. Right here in me, not 1,400 miles away, but right here in front of you. You're watching me move and act. You're hearing my words and my preaching. And what is your response? I'm just hearing crickets from you. Things aren't connecting. Things aren't computing to read his words in our text. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And we're not getting anything. We're not getting anywhere. He goes on virtually to make the kind of same exact point with Jonah. So all I want to do is just kind of read what he says there in verse 32 uh, to you here. He says this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. So remember, the Ninevites, Assyria, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He says these Assyrians, these barbaric enemies, murderous, monstrous kind of guys, idolaters, when the prophet goes to them, I mean, they respond. They're like, they're like uh, repenting. They got sackcloth going on. They're getting on their faces. They realize that the threat of judgment from Yahweh is real. And here now you have something so much greater than Jonah in front of you, and you think it's a joke. You're asking for another sign. You're asking me to do another trick. You're not repenting. You're not receiving the mercy, the grace of God that is, is made available to you now and me. Hearts are hardening. What is going what is this puts a little bit more behind that whole he sighed deeply in his spirit, right? What is wrong with us? Now, as with the first heading, there's one implication in all of this as well that I wanted to bring out here before I move on to the final point. Um, this, again, is really why I worded the second heading the way I did, a greater man. A greater man. Um, I think that what we have with Jesus talking about Solomon and talking about Jonah and then connecting the dots to himself as an even greater revelation of God's redemption, his rescue, his power, all those sorts of things. I think what we have is Jesus saying, listen, all the Old Testament was preparing for this moment. Just like all the signs that I'm doing, 
are preparing, kind of leading you to, pointing forward to that one last sign, the sign of Jonah, my death and resurrection. And I'm hoping you see that. So too, all that's come before me in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings, whether stuff came to you by word or by deed or in the form of symbol or shadows, All of that Old Testament revelation, you could just wrap it up, put a bow on it, and deliver it to me because it's all about me. Solomon, Jonah are the two he uses here. He could have gone anywhere to say, it's all about me. Something greater than that is here. It's all been rising, ascending to this moment. Solomon and Jonah were pictures of Christ in many ways, but they were not the Christ. They themselves were in need of the redemption that only Christ could bring. Let me think with you about these two for a moment. Think of Solomon, his wisdom, his prosperity. First Kings 10, it seems like, dude, this is just going to go up from here. Solomon must be the one that Yahweh promised David would sit on his throne forever. Look at this. It's just going up and up and up, except it doesn't. Except right after the queen of of Sheba shows up, things start to unravel. 1 Kings 10 turns into 1 Kings 11, and this is what we read. Now King Solomon loved Yahweh? No. Many foreign women. And we go down in verse 4 and it says, These women turned his heart away towards their gods and away from Yahweh. King Solomon looks like it's going up. Look at all this wisdom. It spirals out into foolishness. He would be the last king to reign over a unified Israel. The kingdom would split because of him. So where is the wise king? Where is the one who can unite God's people under one authority? Well, he shows up in Jesus Christ, does he not? Luke 2.40, we're told that from a young age, Jesus was filled with wisdom. And as he got older, Luke 2.52, he only increased in wisdom. And unlike Solomon, he stays wholly true to his God to the end, even through death. And when God raises him up and he ascends to the right hand of his father, what what are we told? He sits down on the throne. He is David's son. He is the one who will reign forever and ever. And this is why Paul will talk about him in Solomonic terms, you could say. That's a big word. But he will talk about, he will say things like this, Colossians 2, 3. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or 1 Corinthians 1.30, He has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything that Solomon should have brought in, but failed to, as king of God's people, Jesus will deliver in an ultimate, eternal way. Something greater than Solomon is here, he says. And he does the same thing with Jonah. Think about Jonah with me for a minute. If you just do a high-level skim of Jonah, he actually looks pretty good. He looks like he has a successful ministry. Everywhere he goes, people seem to be repenting and turning towards Yahweh. But when you dive a little bit under the surface, no pun intended, you realize, you realize that his life is hard as a mess. Like he doesn't want mercy to extend to the Gentiles. That's the whole reason why he's running. We thought maybe he was scared 
to go to Syria. He says, I knew your mercy would, 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 would cover even these guys. I knew your love would even cover these guys. That's why I didn't want to go. I don't want them to be a part of our community. Or think about it. Jesus talks about three days, three nights, right? And this idea of the fish being thrown into the water and things. And Think about it. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jonah was hurled into the sea on account of his own sin. The sea was stirred up because Jonah was a rebel. Jesus hurls himself into the sea on account of ours. Jonah needs what Jesus did. The reason why Jonah didn't just perish in the waters there is because Jesus would come and redeem sinners and pay for sin and quiet the waters of God's wrath for us. He, he's not even on the same plane with Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. And so now, and this is really where we'll just draw it to a close in verses 33 to 36, to come out and the basic question is where I began in the beginning. Well, all this has just been kind of leading to this point of, 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 of application, you could say. Okay, so what are you going to do? If, 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 if people were responding to Solomon, responding to Jonah, and something so much greater than Solomon and Jonah is in your midst, the revelation of God's mercy and grace, the revelation of the depths of your sin and need, here in me, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to what God is revealing? That's ultimately what this kind of enigmatic uh, uh, couple of verses here is getting at. I don't have time to read it. But Jesus starts talking about lamps, and he starts talking about uh, eyes and light and darkness. It seems a little bit disjointed and maybe out from left field, but really it tracks right on the same line of thought that he's been on. The idea is this. He is the lamp. These signs, the stuff he's showing, the light is shining forth. God has lit him up, and he is shining. What are you going to do with him? He says, are you going to put this lamp, this light under, uh, uh, you know, down in the cellar? You're going to put it under a basket? Are you going to try to snuff it out? That's what the scribes and Pharisees will do. That didn't work out too well for them. What are you going to try to do? Are you going to try to push it away? Or are you going to invite that light in? Are you going to take it in through, he starts talking about your eyes. Are you going to take it in through your eyes? Are you going to look at Jesus and go, yes. Whatever you're, whatever you're selling, I want to buy it, so to speak. Whatever you got, I, I think I need it. I see the signs. I see the revelation. I want to respond appropriately to it. I want to adore you. I want to repent. I want to believe. I want to receive. Don't just put on a show for me. Save me. Help me. Lead me. If you continue to reject and turn from him, claiming that you see just fine, thank you very much, Jesus says it's going to go dark. But if you come to him and you say, man, I get it. I think I've been blind. I don't think I am seeing well. I think I'm twisting stuff and I'm, I'm building myself up. and make, 
I think I'm seeing what you're talking about. I need more. I need, like, there's a deeper problem than just my circumstances. Like, I see my need for the sign of Jonah. For your death and your resurrection. I've been blind. You start talking about your blindness. You start admitting that. You want to know what happens? Light breaks in. Light breaks in. You start seeing again. It's interesting. Uh, this demonized man that we talked about at the very beginning, the miracle that occasions this whole conflict with these guys, this whole discussion, uh, is actually a wonderful picture of what Jesus has been getting at with us all along. Because um, I'm going to have to borrow from Matthew's account here, but in our text it would seem that this guy is just uh, just mute, right? He, he can't speak. But Matthew tells us that he's actually also blind. He's also blind. Uh, we're told that he was blind. When Jesus cast the demon out, he, 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 Matthew tells us that the man spoke and saw. He spoke and he saw. Matthew 12, 22. I just thought, you know, what a beautiful picture of this idea of Jesus as light. And the ones who receive it, the light breaking in. You think about this guy stuck in demonic darkness. And then the light of Christ comes and he can see. Things aren't the same anymore. Not stumbling over stuff anymore. Oh, I get what that is. Oh, I understand. I don't see my past the same way. I don't see my future the same way. I don't see the present the same way. I used to think I was defined by this. Now I'm defined in Jesus. I used to think I had no hope. Now I have hope in Jesus. I used to think that I was all alone. Now I know I'm in the Father's family. Like everything changed. Light breaks out. I used to think I was all that. Now I realize I'm a sinner. Things change. So the question then to, to, to leave you with is the only question I've been driving. How are you responding to what he is revealing? I recognize that we may be in different spots. I recognize that some people may be on the fringes. And what, what God has been revealing to you, you're just starting to learn a little bit about Jesus. And I would just say, keep going. And that's kind of what you see in the Gospels with the disciples where they don't know who he is. But they know something's going on. And the whole, there's this whole journey almost through the entire gospel, figuring out who is this guy. I want to know. Jesus will reveal himself to you as you follow, as you seek him. But maybe there are others of us who have, we're still on the outside. We're still kind of arms crossed. But man, maybe we've been raised in Christian Christian family. Maybe we know the story. We know all about sin and all sacrifice and all this stuff. We're just like, nah, I need another sign. Nah, Jesus is going to have to prove it to me before I'm going to bend a knee. Like maybe today is that day to say, listen, there's no, there's no neutrality. You're either hardening or softening. Maybe the day, today is the day to say, you know, I think I need what he's offering. I need rescue. I need forgiveness. And others of us were... Christians, perhaps, who've been walking for a while with Jesus. I was telling you, his revelation doesn't just stop when it breaks in at first in the moment of your conversion or something. The light doesn't just stop. It, we, we, there's more that comes to us. That's just the beginning. And so then the question for us is, okay, what he is showing us, what he's revealing to us in the scriptures as the light gets brighter, what are we doing with it? Uh, I didn't want to read that verse. Uh, I didn't want to read about forgiving my enemies. I'm bitter right now. Let's put that light under a basket. 
Ugh, I don't want to read about being generous or selling my stuff and giving it to the poor. I just want to accumulate more stuff. Let's put a basket over that light. Let's drop that one down into the cellar. I really don't want to see that. We say, you know what, man? There's light in this. There's light. It's breaking in. Like a sunrise. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us the greatest revelation of yourself in him. He's the exact imprint. He's the radiance of your glory. Every attribute perfectly unveiled in him. So what are we doing with him, Lord? Father, help us respond to the son with faith, with repentance and faith day after day. Give us your help, Jesus. Let light break in. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen.